So we are in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, and we're continuing our study on the seven churches. And um, Phil was the one that recommended to the elders, um, it's probably been more than a year uh, that he was recommending uh, that we talk about uh, these seven letters to the churches in Asia. And uh, we kind of put them off for a while, but eventually we said, you know, Phil was right. This is the, this is the time to do this. Uh, I know that um, I, I'm really enjoying this study, and I know there are lessons for us here at the chapel in each of these letters. Um, we're not a perfect church here. We're vulnerable to certain sins, and yet we are strong in other areas. So um, as we go through this study, let's think about the, the exhortations and admonitions and let's continue to work on our weaknesses and maintain our strengths. And this morning, let's see what this letter to the church at Thyatira has to say to the, the church on Thyatin Drive. Let's learn these lessons from Thyatira 2,000 years ago and apply them to our own situation here today on the other side of the world. So um, we are in Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 29, and then I will pray and we'll get into the study. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have, re have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the chance we have to, to open it, to see uh, exactly what your son Jesus Christ says, has to say to his church here on Tyaton Drive. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would have uh, ears to hear what your word says. Lord, give me the words to say, set me aside, and just speak directly to our hearts today, Lord. 
And so, uh, Lord, we do commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as is my habit, and I'm not out of the habit this time, I just want to march through our passage uh, verse by verse, and uh, we'll just take it as it comes. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the first thing to know is that, um, is that Thyatira would have been the smallest church of the seven. And yet they are the ones that receive the longest letter. You can see our map. I think different people have had different versions of this same map up here uh, for our first, I think, three letters. And we're working our way around the circle. And Thyatira was about halfway between Pergamum which we talked about two weeks ago, and Sardis, which we're going to talk about next week. So it's about 40 miles away from them. And it was a small city, more of a town, really, with no natural defenses and a history of being destroyed and rebuilt. The archaeological findings for Thyatira have been relatively small. It has the least archaeological evidence of the seven cities. And really, it was the smallest, least known, least significant, least remarkable city of these seven Asian cities. Now, Thyatira was a city of commerce. It was known for its trade guilds, especially its wool and dye industry. You may remember Lydia, the seller of purple goods, who became a believer under the influence of Paul. She was from Thyatira. So there was a certain freedom for women in this town to pursue their careers. The trade guilds were very influential because they fed the main industry in town, which was idol worship. The worship of idols, especially Apollo, was part of daily life here. So the guilds fed the idolatry, and the idolatry led to sexual immorality. And so it would have been hard for a Christian living in Thyatira. It was difficult to find work in a town uh, within an industry that wouldn't have been connected to idol worship. And so the believers there would have been outside of the city's routines and daily life. Now this letter uh, emphasizes the deity of Christ. I read that it's the only time the phrase Son of God is used in the book of Revelation. And notice that Jesus Christ here has eyes like flames of fire. The eyes symbolize his piercing vision and his blazing anger against sin. This is more than just an x-ray vision of the body. This is a full body scan of the condition of his church by an omniscient and all-knowing God. Now the feet of burnished bronze symbolize the Lord's pending judgment based on what, his, what he sees, and it symbolizes his power to execute that judgment. This uh, introduction here of the Lord Jesus Christ is a reference back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, which says, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. 
Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So now remember here that Jesus is addressing the church. These are believers that are receiving this letter. And look at the good things they were doing. They were faithful. They were serving. They were patiently enduring trials and tribulations. And they were loving God and loving others. This was the only church commended for its love. They had not abandoned their first love. In fact, they were growing. Their works were increasing. They were doing more and more for the Lord. And the Lord Jesus knows their works. He was seeing all of the effort of this little church in Thyatira. So what went wrong? What were they missing? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So let's talk about Jezebel. This lady in the Thyatira church, her name may have actually been Jezebel, but more likely this was a nickname. But there was an actual woman there in the church who referred to herself as a prophetess. She was so well known that everyone would know who Jesus was referring to here. Jesus is equating this woman to the Jezebel we know from the Old Testament, who's referenced in First and Second Kings. The Old Testament Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, and she introduced pagan religion to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was worse than anything that had come before. She led people into Baal worship with, its, with all of its evil rituals, including sexual immorality and perversion. As I said, Jezebel here represents an actual woman, but women in scripture were also used to symbolize religious systems, both good and bad. In this case, Jezebel represents a false religious system, and Jesus uses this name in a disparaging way. Even today, the name Jezebel has a negative connotation. Just like no man wants to be called a Judas, no woman wants to be called a Jezebel. Jesus wasn't condemning Jezebel for being a prophetess. He is condemning her for being a false prophetess. She was saying that once you are saved, you can do whatever you want with your body. She was teaching the church that it was okay to participate in the feasts connected with idol worship, even though those feasts led to sexual immorality. She was leading these people into spiritual infidelity. She was teaching them that adopting the practices of the world around them was fully compatible with following Christ. This is false teaching and false doctrine, and Jesus condemns the church for allowing this teaching to continue. Now the word tolerate is used here. Tolerate and tolerance, these are popular words these days and often misused. Tolerance implies differences. If there weren't any differences, 
there would be nothing that would need to be tolerated. Tolerance can be a good thing. We need to have tolerance for many of our differences. Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, people from every, every nation and tribe and tongue. We celebrate diversity in the body of Christ, God's rich variety in his creation. We strive for unity, not uniformity. But there are some things that should not be tolerated in the church. It is not okay to tolerate sin. In fact, it's sin to tolerate the sin of others within the church. Specifically, as in the church at Thyatira, we cannot tolerate false teaching, which ultimately leads to evil behavior. In the case of Thyatira, it led to sexual immorality and idol worship. Tolerance of sin led to participation in sinful practices. Notice again that the love and faith and service and increasing works are all not enough. We need to proclaim and defend the truth. We need to protect the flock from false teaching and its consequences. Even God's servants can be seduced by temptation. Even God's people can be ignorant and susceptible to false teaching. We can be caught up and sucked into someone else's sin. So here are some questions we can ask ourselves here at the chapel. If Jesus was having a conversation with our chapel family, what would he have against us? What can we do to fix it? Are we tolerating sin? Personally tolerating sin, or as the church as a whole, are we tolerating sin? How do we spot false teaching and deal with it? What can we do to keep from being seduced? Who are we allowing to promote themselves and their own brand of spirituality? Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Notice here that the immorality had been pointed out to Jezebel by Jesus, and yet the immorality continued with no repentance or change. How do we respond when the Lord makes us aware of our sinful patterns? Do we take advantage of the time he gives us to repent, or do we continue our resistance? When God convicts us of our evil habits, do we respond when we have the chance? Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, when we read these verses, we see the rippling effects of persistent sin. Jesus judges us, and our spiritual sin can result in physical consequences. Sexual immorality can have physical consequences. In this case, they were thrown onto a sickbed. In our day, it can result in an unwanted pregnancy or a sexually transmitted disease. Notice that the judgment goes beyond Jezebel to those who practice immorality with her and those who follow after her. Sin's effect goes beyond ourselves, even to the next generation. 
Now, Jesus says this to shock the reader into either repenting of their sin or avoiding sin altogether because of its devastating consequences. And remember, he's talking with the saints. Not just unbelievers are called to repent. Disobedient Christians must as well. Just like when Jonah went to Nineveh, there is still a chance for believers in Thyatira to avoid this judgment if they repent. The judgment will surely come if they don't repent. If you or me, if we're in an unrepentant pattern of sin and judgment hasn't come yet, don't worry, it will. Remember the times we live in. What is acceptable in our society and culture today may be repulsive to God. And so the world attempts to infiltrate our church and get us to compromise on God's truth. But loving concessions to the world are not acceptable to God. We must be a loving church, yes, but we must continue to stand for the truth, no matter the pressures from the world around us. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This judgment coming from Jesus to Jezebel and her followers would be so dramatic that all the believers would know the source. Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing, and he is judge. He knows what we are doing and what we are thinking. Are we as individuals ready to face the all-knowing, all-seeing Son of God on Judgment Day? Are we ready to be gifted according to our works? Notice that there will be a variety of rewards in heaven. There is a ranking and a holy measurement of our deeds, and the resulting gifts and rewards will stay with us for eternity as a reminder of what we thought and what we did as believers here on earth. I just want to make a quick side note here, a quick plug. Um, I've been in an accountability group, I've mentioned this to you guys before, for the past six months with a couple of other guys. And these guys know my sins and my struggles and my heartaches and my challenges. This practice of accountability with other believers helps us practice our openness with God. Confession to others helps us confess and repent with the Lord. There is no point in hiding from the Lord who sees it all and knows it all. If anyone's interested in, in joining something like that, let me know and I'll point you in the right direction. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jezebel was pitching this, was enticing her followers, come learn from me and we'll learn the deep things of God. That's, that was her sales pitch. She was boasting that they would have greater spiritual perception. This may have been the beginning of Gnosticism, which taught that you could do whatever you want with your body, and it wouldn't harm your spirit or soul. She was telling them they could participate in evil 
and their faith in Christ would show this evil to be powerless. And so instead of leading them into the deep things of God, she leads them into the deep things of Satan, sexual immorality combined with idolatry. There are just some things that we shouldn't learn. Be careful about anyone trying to teach you something deep and secret and hidden. The principles and precepts of Christianity are totally exposed, totally out in the open for anyone to learn and know. Notice also that Satan is having an influence within this church. He can enter our church family. He isn't just on the outside. How have we allowed Satan a foothold here at the chapel? And are we learning the lessons of other people's sins? Are we learning what not to do by seeing the consequences of others' mistakes? Only hold fast what you have until I come. James texted me those words yesterday, hold fast. Isn't that a great phrase for for today, for the believers today? Jesus had a faithful remnant within the church at Thyatira. He always has a faithful remnant, even if small, which holds on to the truth. He only asked two things of this faithful remnant, to end their toleration of Jezebel and to hold fast until he returns. There are many churches in this country that have abandoned the truth of the gospel. Sometimes that may mean that the faithful believer may leave or must leave that church. Maybe most of the time that's what it means. But maybe there are times to hold fast within the church until the Lord's judgment comes, as it inevitably will on those who are practicing immorality. Hopefully this is a church where we all hold fast to the truth against the increasing pressures of the world and the flesh and the devil. Are we, are we remaining faithful while we're waiting for Jesus Christ to come for his bride? How do we do that? How can we hold fast during these times? Okay, I want to take another little detour at this point. Many commentators look at these seven churches and they see seven eras or seven ages of church history. They say that each of these churches represents a different period of time between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church. In the case of Thyatira, the scholars will say that this epitomizes the the rise of false religions and systems that corrupt true Christianity. They say it represents the church from the time of Emperor Constantine to the time of the Reformation, often called the Dark Ages, where unscriptural teaching was rampant. They would equate this to the Catholic Church during this time. Now, the Roman Catholic Church dominated Europe for almost a thousand years until Martin Luther and the Reformers arrived on the scene. Some of you, I know, have come out of the Catholic Church. Catholicism is a mixture of Christianity, Judaism, and paganism. It is a counterfeit religion designed by Satan with its rituals, with the Pope, its teachings on purgatory, Mary worship, and salvation by works. Scholars would say that the Catholic Church 
was given a long time to repent of its sins before judgment came in the form of the Protestant Reformation. But as we mentioned earlier, Jesus always has a remnant, even in a corrupted church. Even in the Dark Ages, there were true followers of Christ that were full of, God, of good works that were to be commended. Even in those days, the true believers were commanded to hold fast. There we go. The one who conquers, verse 26, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So true believers who are faithful to Christ will be rewarded by Jesus in the next life. We've mentioned that. Works don't earn us salvation, but once we have been saved by Jesus, we can work for him. And our eternal rewards are based on, the, on those works. Rewards are with us for eternity, and they remind us of our time spent in our mortal bodies. Now, one of these rewards for those who conquer and keep the works of Jesus will happen during the millennium. The millennial kingdom is Christ's thousand-year reign here on earth that will begin with his second coming. These faithful Christians who endure until the end will share in the reign and rule of Christ during his kingdom. Now, this idea of reigning would have been shocking to the small band of faithful in the small church in the small city of Thyatira, especially given the pervasive rule of Rome over their lives. What are we doing as we await the return of Jesus? Are we patiently enduring? Are we walking in the works that God has laid out for us? How can we conquer and keep his works until the end? And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, uh, many of us here at the chapel believe in this literal thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. This view is called premillennialism. Under this position, those who are, who are in the church are raptured and receive their resurrected bodies. Then they will return to earth at the second coming of Christ to reign and rule with him over all the nations. Satan will be bound for these thousand years and the resurrected members of the church will rule with Christ over the mortal population left on the earth after the conclusion of the tribulation. Jesus' reign will be righteous, justice will be swift, and he will protect his sheep from harm. The language here in this verse is difficult, but the general idea is that we will be involved in administering and shepherding with Christ. It's hard to picture for me, but, but there will be an authority and a hierarchy in eternity, even in God's perfect government. Different rewards equal different places in the hierarchy, different jobs and different experiences for each of us. Are you looking forward to reigning with Christ? Are you looking forward to a thousand years here on earth in our resurrected bodies? What are you looking forward to doing in the millennium? What places do you want to visit? What foods do you want to eat? Where do you want to live? How do you want to serve the Lord? 
last two verses. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So finally, let's look at the morning star mentioned in verse 28. This is a beautiful and mysterious phrase that isn't well understood or clearly explained elsewhere in Scripture. Some of you know that Mr. Douglas here uh, just finished a remodel at our house. And when the remodel was going on, we moved down into the guest bedroom. And my side of the bed was right next to the window that faces to the east. And before the dawn each morning, if it wasn't cloudy, I could see a bright star close to the horizon. The morning star typically refers to the planet Venus. It's a symbol of sovereignty and victory, and it's brightest right before the dawn. Revelation 22.16 says that Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. One thought is that the conqueror would receive never-ending life found only in Christ. We will enjoy Christ in all his fullness someday. Another idea I read is that the Lord will actually give Venus and other planets and stars as rewards, that we will have all of eternity to explore the whole universe and the wonders of God's creation. There was another idea that several commentators mentioned. You've heard the phrase, it's always darkest before the dawn. In this thought, the night is right now. It's a time of evil and pain and suffering. And the day is the millennial kingdom when Christ reigns over all the earth with peace and justice. The dawn represents the second coming of Christ to execute judgment and to begin his reign. And the morning star represents Jesus Christ returning for his church at the rapture. Just like the morning star appears before the dawn, Jesus will come for his saints before the judgment, the night before the night of judgment is over and before the dawn of his reign on earth. The one who holds fast and conquers and keeps the works of Jesus will be given the morning star. Here in 2021, we are in the deep, dark hours of the night. These hours are the worst hours of the day. But the morning star will appear soon. And shortly after that, the morning will shine eternal, bright, and fair. Are you longing for the morning star and then the morning? Are you longing for Jesus Christ to come for you? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have a hope, that we have a future that is found only in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, even in the midst of night, the bright and morning star is coming for us, and we are so grateful and thankful for that, Lord. So, Lord, help us as a church to keep false teaching out, and help us, Lord, to preach the truth, teach the truth week after week, day after day, Lord. Help us to be faithful to the truth. Help us not abandon our first love, and help us to be faithful for the truth. And Lord, 
Help us to hold fast until the return of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Give us patience, give us perseverance, give give us endurance as we watch and wait for your son's return. And help us hold fast to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.